Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? All right, grab your Bibles, would you? Open them on up to Mark chapter 11. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just quiet our hearts. We prepare our souls and our hearts to do, to do deep work this morning. God, to interact with your word, not clumsily, Lord, not disrespectfully, not flippantly. We ask, God, that your word would do a, a sanctifying work, a shaping work, a deep work in our soul. God, we are the ones that have gone astray. We are the ones that believe wrongly, that see wrongly, that have believed lies over and over again. God, you are ultimate reality. And your word is the expression of your mind. And so this morning, God, we want to respond and conform and align ourselves to the reality of your mind. And you've expressed that mind in your word. So it is our privilege and our honor this morning, God, to open your word and to know that what we're reading is pure and unadulterated. And then we ask for your guidance as we interpret and apply this word to know, God, how to do it rightfully. Lord, we make us, make us students this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You know, neutrality, the idea of neutrality is really a commodity. I don't know if you guys saw in the news this week, uh, kind, of, kind of a big deal. Um, two countries in particular, uh, Finland and Sweden, made kind of history when they applied to become part of NATO. That's really significant because Sweden in particular for 200 years has been militarily um, neutral. They've chosen to be neutral. But with the, the recent precipitous actions in, the, in, in, in Europe with Russia taking over Ukraine, all bets are off. And these countries like Sweden and like Finland are realizing that neutrality was, was really a commodity, right? And, and at some point, human evil cannot really um, exist without being dealt with, that they're going to have to pick sides. This lesson was learned for our country back in, in World War II. Remember, we wanted to stay out of World War II. That was sort of the goal, was to stay out of World War II. And then we woke up one morning to the news that Pearl Harbor had been bombed and the Japanese had basically forced us into the Second World War. My point is just simply this, that neutrality is a commodity. It's not something that, that really exists within reality. Neutrality is, is something that, that at some point just doesn't seem to work anymore, and particularly in the area of God's sovereignty. Okay, I'm going to say this statement, and I'm going to say it over and over again through this whole morning. Okay, there is no neutrality when it comes to God's sovereignty. There is no neutrality when it comes to God's sovereignty. You may think there is, or you may feel like there is, but that is only because God is patiently delaying the complete consummation of his authority on this world, okay? Every material and spiritual thing will line up on one side or the other of God's sovereignty. 
Everything is either in alignment with God's authority, submitting to God's authority, or in rebellion against God's authority. All of humanity can be divided by this binary. Either you are under Adam or you are under Christ. Either you are at war with God or you are on God's side. You're saying, Sam, why are you being so dramatic? I'm not. That's just what the Bible says. There is no middle ground. There is no, there is no lukewarm space. There is no fence to sit on. There is no common space. There is no neutrality. There is God's kingdom and there is man's kingdom, which is ruled by the devil. Okay? That's just really that simple. Not everything in life is black and white, but that's something that certainly is. Okay? Uh, there's a lot of gray in the world, and that's something that's just not gray. Humanity is not neutral. It is not passive in their position towards God. Humanity is active and, 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 and persistent in trying to take the car keys from God. And I think you know what I mean by that. We want God's world. We want God's world for ourselves. We want God's stuff for ourselves. We want God's glory for ourselves, and we want God's job. <laughs> we want God's job. We, want, we, we don't want to ask God if we can take the car. We just want to take the car. Okay? Now, in our text today, this is all relevant, really, because in our text today, it's all about authority. The whole passage is really centered around this theme of authority, particularly the, the, the authority of Christ. And there are those who think they have authority in the world are, are dealing with the fact that Jesus is um, kind of pushing on their authority. There's, there's really too many cooks in the kitchen. Jesus comes having all authority, and then you have the Sanhedrin, who are these, these 71 members that had all of the religious authority in the land, and Jesus is, is making it very clear that they can't have authority and he have authority. One of the two is going to have to win. And so here's what happens. So Jesus, you either must receive him or you must kill him. He doesn't really leave you another option. Okay, either, either you receive him as who he says he is, or you put him on the cross. And the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin that we're going to look at this morning, they ultimately chose to put him on the cross, and Jesus didn't really give them another option. This morning is about authority, uh, and Jesus' authority. And Jesus, we're going to find, and this is, this is a word that I don't use lightly, but Jesus is a very polarizing figure. Would you agree? He's very polarizing. He's been painted in postmodernism as sort of this, you know, just happy sort of universalist, hug everybody, love everybody, um, squishy deity. But in reality, he's very polarizing. And he's not going to let the religious leaders wiggle out into some kind of a neutral space. So that's what we're going to look at here in, in our text. A little bit of review. Um, if you guys remember, we are really in Passion Week right now, which is the final week of Christ's ministry. And it is the, uh, really the jam-packed, full of events. Some of the most important events of Jesus' life and ministry were in the last week. And so really every single Sunday that we're looking at a passage is usually one day's worth uh, of material. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem during Passover week. Uh, Passover week meant Jerusalem was bustling, bursting at the seams with pilgrims from Israel and from even all of the nations making their way uh, into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover Historians have recorded that anywhere from up close to 2 to 2.6 million people would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So this place is just, it's very, very much buzzing with um, energy and, and, and with um, chaos, really. So Jesus, we saw him enact this parable on a, on a fig tree. Remember, last week he, he cursed this fig tree and it was a way for him to signal to the apostate Judaism, the apostate religion of the day, that it was dead and that it was dying. 
Then Jesus went into the temple and he essentially attacked the temple. It wasn't a cleansing, it was a full-on judgment. Jesus took over the temple mount, this massive, uh, this massive, uh, okay, so these guys back here are laughing at me because apparently I do this a lot, you know, apparently, they're ca- and last week they counted, what did it, was it 30 times or something? <laughs> so now I'm really insecure about it, I'm like, oh man, look at it, sit on my hand. <laughs> Anyways, every time I do it now, I'm going to look at you guys, it's just, it's just terrible, man, oh, it's so bad. Anyways, so Jesus has taken over the temple, it's his temple now. It's his temple. It's not Herod's temple anymore. It's not the Sadducees' temple. It's Jesus' temple. One little average Jewish man who was a carpenter walks into the temple and takes it over. It's really just an, an amazing scene to realize. Now, Jesus is walking and teaching in the temple for his last few days before he goes to the cross. And this is kind of where we punch in. Now, it's interesting, and I think according to God's providence and sovereignty, that Jesus is being examined by the high priests. Why? Because he is the Passover lamb. He is the ultimate eternal Passover lamb, the once for all atonement uh, for uh, the sins of, of, of all who would believe in him. Jesus is the Passover lamb and therefore he must be examined by the high priest. And the high priest is one of the 71 members of the religious council in, Jew, or in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. Now, these guys are the power center of the religion of Judaism in the day. They hold all the cards, It's made up of Pharisees, it's made up of Sadducees, and it's made up of the elders, the chief elders. Okay, now these people don't have military power, and they don't have political power, but they have all the religious power. And Jesus is on their turf. Jesus has been edging his way closer and closer to to sort of flirting with, taking over their power, and they're nervous to the point where now they're literally talking about plans to put him to death. And now uh, he's taken over their money-making scheme. The money-making scheme of the, of the temple has been overtaken, and now Jesus is, is literally messing with their bankroll. So things are not going well. Now, they're, they're sending some of their best guys into the, the public place of the temple to interact with Jesus and see if they can um, shut him down theologically. So let's pick it up in verse 27. Now, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes And the elders, that is the Sanhedrin, came to him and they said to him, by what authority, note that word, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Why are they so concerned with the authority of Christ? Well, it's because authority is their world. They are, according to themselves, they are the authority. They are the ones that divvy out authority. They are the ones that give credential to religious people or religious leaders in the day. So Jesus was a nobody, according to them, according to their power matrix. See, Jesus didn't go to their schools. Jesus didn't train under their rabbis. Jesus didn't quote their rabbis. And Jesus didn't look to them for authority. He operated under his own authority. And it drove them crazy. And so they're coming to Jesus with this question. And it's, it's essentially this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? We didn't send you. We didn't, uh, you know, we didn't sign off on you. We, we didn't ordain you. You didn't come through our school. You didn't get our diploma. You didn't get our recognition. You didn't get anything from us. And, and now you're walking around with this authority. Now, now, what are they talking about when they say authority? What is this authority that Jesus showed that was so threatening to them? Let me give you a few examples. It wasn't just the cleansing of the temple. That was the main one, trust me. But it was more than that. Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, we saw him authoritatively forgive sin. Remember that? 
Mark chapter 2, verse 5, the paralytic lowered through the roof. Uh, Jesus forgives his sin, and then he heals him. That was the first red light for the Pharisees. Who is this guy think he is? Only God forgives sin. Jesus had no problems forgiving sin. Now, of course, not only could he do that because he was God, he could do that because he himself would become the propitiation for that man's sin, right? Okay, he, he, he showed his authority uh, in the fact that he taught with originality. You know, the, the, the Pharisees would appeal to the gravitas of greater uh, teachers and greater Pharisees in order to give themselves sort of a sense of um, uh, credential. But Jesus would just teach as though he was the one making up the material, as though he was the one giving the thoughts. In Mark chapter 122, it says, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus just teaches as though this stuff is coming straight from his mind, straight from his heart, straight from his own, uh, his own thinking. He displayed authority over power, or uh, he displayed power over demons and sickness and, and creation constantly. Remember, he spoke and the waves obeyed him. Now, the Pharisees uh, have been following Jesus around like creeps, watching everything that he's doing, and then they're continually seeing him offend by claiming this position of authority. He condemned the religious elite, which is an authoritative thing to do. He acted as sort of an Old Testament prophet, calling uh, Israel nationally to repentance. He claimed authority over the Sabbath, when he said the Son of Man is even Lord over the Sabbath, sovereign over the Sabbath. So everything Jesus is doing has offended one very basic thing with these guys, and it's power. He has shown that he has the power. He is the sovereign. He has the authority. And there is basically an incompatibility here because the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they want the power. Are you seeing it? They want the power. But Jesus has the power. He told his disciples before he left this earth, he said, all power has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. By who? By the Father. So Jesus didn't need the credential of the Pharisees. Now their intent in asking this question is to entrap him. They want to theologically disassemble him. They want to get him to say something that will give them um, the permission to ultimately remove him. Something like he's said before, like my father gives me the authority. They would love it if he would have said that because then it would make himself equal with God and they could deal with him the way they want to deal with him. But Jesus is too smart for these guys. These guys are pretty smart. Jesus is smarter. So in trying to trap him, he is going to trap them. Look, verse 29. Jesus said to them, I love this, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This is classic rabbinical rhetoric. I'll tell you, I'll answer your question if you answer my question first. If you don't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. Neater, neater, right? That's, that's kind of what, what he's saying, okay? Um, so he says, answer my question, and here's what his question is. Now note it, it's important. Here's what his question is. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now why is Jesus asking this question? First of all, He's talking about John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. John's last name wasn't Baptist, by the way, and no, he wasn't a Baptist, um, believe it or not, and he wasn't a Presbyterian either. Um, John was an Old Testament prophet. In fact, he was the last, really the last Old Testament prophet. And John did this really bizarre thing. At least it would have been bizarre to them. See, we don't think it's bizarre because we're evangelicals. We, we grew up watching baptisms. But in John's day, the fact that he was out in the Jordan River dunking Jewish people was weird. It was weird. 
Why was it weird? It was weird because they believed in the first century that Jews were ultimately right with God because of their ethnicity, see? They were Jews. The, the dunking of, or the, the, the baptism that Jesus is, is or that John is using is, is what was called a proselyte baptism. It was a way of showing that a Gentile was coming into the community of faith or the community of, of the religion of Yahweh. So they would, they would use this as, as a way for Gentiles to show allegiance to Yahweh. Now, John is using it to baptize Jews. Why? Because he's signaling that Israel had gone rogue, that Israel was not right with God, and that Israel needed to repent. Okay, so Jesus is asking this strange question. He's saying, this thing John did where he's, he was baptizing, was that from God or was that from man? That's what he's essentially asking here. Now, there's, there's more than one reason Jesus is bringing this up. One of them, I think, is very interesting. Do you remember when John was baptizing in the Jordan? Do you remember what happened? Jesus came up, and John, we learn in, in John the apostle's gospel, he says, behold, the Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus comes into the water and he, he asks John the Baptist to baptize him. Now, why is that significant? And why is Jesus bringing this up? Remember, the, remember what we're talking about here? We're talking about authority. Their question is, Jesus, where do you get this authority? Jesus' answer is, well, what do you think about John's baptism? Now, what is Jesus trying to remind them of? He's trying to remind them of a very specific moment in which Jesus went into the water and Jesus came out of the water and what happened? The Father gave a verbal declaration of authority to the Son. Remember that? And then the Spirit of God fell. And who do you think was present for that? You think maybe the Pharisees were present for that? We know they were present for that. John called them a brood of vipers. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The Pharisees were present for the, the baptism of Jesus. This was a public coronation, a public declaration of the authority of Christ, and the Pharisees knew it. And are you telling me that it didn't go up the ladder? you telling me that the, that the Sanhedrin didn't hear about it? So here's my point. These guys know whose authority Jesus is operating on. They already know. It's not a question. They're not curious. They're not wanting to know the truth. They already know the truth. They're simply trying to trap Jesus. And so Jesus is so smart. He's so masterful. He brings up the topic that they know that he knows that they don't want to bring up for a lot of reasons. And we'll see why here in just a moment. Listen, listen to how they answer, okay? This is key. Verse 31, they discussed it with one another. Now they have to take a minute and huddle up which is always a bad sign, right? Like, oh, let me talk to my PR guy. Let me get my lawyer on the phone. I really want to get the right answer here, okay? So they, they huddle up, and, and they go, what do we do? He just brought up the one thing we didn't want him to bring up, which is this crazy guy, John, that everybody seems to like. I don't know why they like him, but they like him. They say this. They say, if we say it's from heaven, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? In other words, if they say, yeah, John the Baptist, he was a true prophet. He was an authentic, God-sent prophet. The problem with that is, is he called them a brood of vipers. <laughs> so what does that say about them? That means that they're choosing to agree with John's estimation of them. And that's a real problem for them. Because that would basically mean they'd have to repent. They'd have to go, yep, what John said about us was true. So that's out. Close that door. 32. But shall we say he was from man in other words, should we say his ministry was not God-sent? They were afraid of the people, 
for they all held that John really was a prophet. So if they say, yeah, John was a true prophet, or pardon me, if they say John wasn't a true prophet, then they got to deal with the people because John was popular with the people. They saw him as a true prophet. And guess what? The ministries of Jesus and the ministries of John are inseparable. Not only were they cousins, but they're tied together. If you get one, you get both. So these guys realize that Jesus just put them in a corner and they don't know where to go. What Jesus has effectively done here is he has exposed their dual idolatry to sin and self. If they admit John was from God, then they have to confess their sin and repent. If they say he's not from God, then they lose face with the people. Sin and self. Their true loves are exposed here in this moment. Jesus unveils their dual loves, dual loves for sin and self, and so what do they choose? Neutrality. They choose neutrality. They're like, well, we're just not going to answer. Okay? We're not going to answer because that's the cowardly approach. The cowardly approach. And I love what Jesus says in response. 33. See? So they answered Jesus, we do not know, which was a lie. They did know. They don't want to say it because the cost is too high. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to tell me, I'm not going to tell you. Take my ball and go home. Okay? Jesus is essentially telling these guys that I'm not going to give you the truth because you don't want the truth. You can't handle the truth. right? You don't want it. These guys don't want to know. They already know. One commentator, James Edwards, he says the following. He says, those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. If there is a faith, if there is faith even as small as a mustard seed, Jesus responds, truly I tell you. But in the face of calculated unbelief, he responds, neither will I tell you. A lot of people say they want God to reveal himself. A lot of people say they want the truth. But the reality is they already know and they're suppressing it, and we'll talk more about that later. Now, instead of answering them directly, Jesus is going to picture them succinctly. He's going to give a parable now that basically nails them, that, that exposes the reality, the hypocrisy, the murderous desire of these guys, and it's one of the more interesting parables, I think, that we look at. So let's, let's dive into that here in verse 12. Now, by the way, parables are typically designed to cloak the truth. They're designed to conceal the truth. Not this one. Okay. This parable is meant to expose the murderous hypocrisy of the leaders of the day. Okay. And it's really no question what Jesus is talking about here in this parable. Verse 12. He began to speak to them in parables. And he says this. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, I just want you to notice here that, that this picture that Jesus is painting um, is not just a piece of dirt. This is a curated piece of land that has had a significant investment made into it. It's not just a piece of dirt. There's a vineyard has been planted. It's a lot of work. I have a friend that owns a vineyard. It's a lot of work to curate wine grapes. It's a lot of work to, to dig a hole when you don't have tractors. It's a lot of work to create wine vats. This is a curated and an invested in piece of property. This is a business. This is an operation. And the purpose of it is to produce, okay? Now, it's no secret what Jesus is talking about when he brings up the picture of the vineyard. The reason is because he's quoting Isaiah 5 almost verbatim. And Isaiah 5 would have been memorized by the people he's speaking to. 
Isaiah 5 was a public uh, condemnation to apostate Israel in Isaiah's day, where, in which he said, God planted a vineyard, and that vineyard didn't produce, so God judged the vineyard. So Jesus is bringing up something that to them was shorthand, it's obvious, Okay, that's like if I say the word mostly dead, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so in this, uh, Princess Bride fans at least, okay. So, so um, in this day, Jesus brings up something. They, they know what he's talking about. He says, there's a vineyard, somebody planted a vineyard, they invested in it, they're thinking Israel. They're not going, hmm, I wonder what the vineyard is. They know what the vineyard is. It's obvious. That's why John 15, uh, by the way, John 15 is so significant when Jesus says he is the vine. He's saying, I'm the replacement of Israel. I'm literally the new, the new Israel. It's really huge. Okay, so, so he paints this picture. The owner is clearly God, right? The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. And that means that God, because God gave Israel everything it needed. Uh, it was his vine living on his dime, constructed out of his resources and made for the purpose of his glory. God invested in the vine, which was Israel, for the purpose of ROI, which is return on investment, Okay? He didn't just plant a vineyard for the purpose of a vineyard. He planted a vineyard so the vineyard would produce fruit. That was the purpose of Israel. And the leaders of Israel, of course, are the ones he's leased it out to. Are you tracking with me? Are you getting the picture? Okay, verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to go get from them some, notice, some of the fruit. Not all of the fruit, just some of the fruit, just the dividends, just what was meant to be produced for the owner, okay? He's not a cruel master. He's not a cruel owner. He is a fair owner. He just wants the fruit that the vineyard was meant to, was meant to produce, verse three. And they took him, the servant, they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And, with so, or, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Notice the digression here. With each servant that the master sends, their flagrant, bold, defiant treachery is greater. These guys have no interest in paying the fee, paying the dues to the owner. They only have interest in keeping it for themselves. Now, Jesus here is clearly referring to the long, long, long list of prophets that God sent to Israel that they did not listen to, that they shamefully treated, that they abused, and that they killed. The last of which being John the Baptist. See, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, warning Israel, calling Israel back to, to give God the glory, to live for the owner of the vineyard, and they didn't. They just kept killing prophets. That's why Jesus says in Luke 13, 34, he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow, the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. In other words, a prophet came into Jerusalem to be stoned. That's what happened. It wasn't a good job to be a prophet in the Old Testament. So I love it when some of these Pentecostals are like, I'm a prophet. I'm like, watch out. Watch out. Prophets got stoned in Israel, right? They, especially the real ones, the true ones, the false prophets, everybody loved them because they told them what they wanted to hear. The false prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, these guys had hard lives. They were mistreated, mishandled by Israel time and time again. So he says, 
Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Now, just a side note here. The messenger of God almost always gets punched in the mouth. So just get used to that. If you're, if you're going to tell somebody the truth, hopefully in a loving way, you're going to get punched in the mouth. And maybe not physically, but probably verbally. <laughs> because people don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. We'll hear more about that in a minute. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, it's not rocket science. Who is the son referring to? Jesus is going to die. He knows. He's the final one sent. He's the final one the father sent. And, and, and he knows. He's reading their mail. He knows they're planning to kill him. And as he says this, I can imagine the sinking feeling in the Sanhedrin's back of their throat. They're going, oh my goodness, he knows. He knows what we're planning. This flagrant disregard for the owner's authority hits a watermark in the killing of the son. What are they not willing to do to silence the message of the owner that the vineyard belongs to him? Verse eight, and they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. They disgracefully throw his body out like it's a piece of trash, like it's a dead animal, exactly what they did to the body of Christ. They shamefully treated the son. Now here's the question that is meant to punch the audience right between the eyes. What will the owner do? What will the owner do? I mean, this is meant to bring about, parables are meant to bring about a, a, a feeling in the audience, and the feeling of this should be justice. How could these guys do this? How could they take this vineyard that wasn't theirs? How could they kill servant after servant and even the son? How dare they, right? That's the feeling it was supposed to evoke in the audience. The only problem is the Sanhedrin have been working year after year after year to callous their heart from any conviction of God. So even though they know this is about them, they don't fall to their knees in repentance knowing they've planned to kill the Son of God. No, they double down. They harden their hearts. He will come and destroy. What will he do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Who are the others? It's the church. It's the Gentiles. Israel or that the promises of, of Israel have been now found or fully realized in the person of Christ, the head of the church and his body subsequently. And verse 10, have you not read this scripture? Psalm 118, he quotes a scripture. The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus brings up another reference they're familiar with, this picture of a stone that rather than being chosen as the corner of the building, it's set aside and forgotten out in the weeds. And a new building is constructed in its place. But then someone comes along and realizes that this cornerstone that was rejected and thrown out is actually the best and the most chief of cornerstones. And they take it and they build a whole new building. Jesus is saying himself, he is the cornerstone. He will be rejected by Israel and then he will become the, the foundation stone, the firstborn, the type, the, 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 the beginning of an entirely new structure, which is not a temple. It is the temple of living stones. We read about it in Ephesians. When Paul says Jesus himself became the cornerstone, the chief stone, the temple would be judged by 70 AD, uh, the, the Romans would disassemble it, the Pharisees would come to an end, 
and the church has lived on because the new structure of the church has been built on Christ, not on false religion. Are you with me? Okay. Verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. The fear of man. The fear of man, listen, this is just a side note. The fear of man will drive you to kill the, the son of God. It will. If you are a slave to the fear of man, it will drive you to kill the son of God. What are these guys compelled by? They're compelled by power. They're compelled by money. If they're really compared, they're compelled by fear. And not fear of God, fear of humans. They're afraid. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And that's our text. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? This, this passage as a whole, I, 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 think, I see three absurd realities here that we just simply have to interact with. <laughs> there's, there's three absurdities in this passage I just want to draw your attention to. Three absurdities. Things that I just, I, I just can't believe them. They, they stun me. They shock me. Okay? And I just want to draw those out for you. The first absurdity in this passage is the absurdity of human evil. The absurdity of human evil. This, this parable teaches us some things about how bad humans really are. <laughs> you know, th- this, this, uh, this passage was not meant to just apply to a few religious elite. It was meant to apply to all of humanity. We learn some things in this parable. We learn some things in this passage that teach us about humanity as a whole. And you know, you've been lied to about humanity. Did you know that? You've been lied to. You've been lied to about what it means to be human, what it means to be male, what it means to be female. You've been lied to about what it means to love yourself and and, and how you should love yourself and what self even means. You have been spoon-fed lies about humanity from birth. There are three lies in particular that this text actually um, exposes and contradicts. The first lie that you've been told from, from birth is that humans are neutral towards God. Humans are neutral towards God, we're good-natured from birth, and we're basically open to truth. Have you ever heard that? Maybe some of you believe that. It's very popular to believe that. Humans are good. I just spoke to a gentleman the other day, and he said, you know, I, I said, what's your hope in? He said, my hope is in humanity. I just think humanity is basically good, and over time, humanity is going to eventually. I said, okay, have fun with that. How's that going for you? I don't mean to disrespect that. I just, it's, it's, it's very trendy right now to, to believe that humans are basically good. What does this parable have to say about that? What does this parable have to say about that? You know, it's the vineyard workers uh, stop at nothing to suppress the truth of the vineyard's ownership, don't they? They stop at nothing. And the Pharisees here are doing anything possible to avoid the truth exposure that's coming at them. There's this idea that, that humans are basically, um, basically good and we're open to the truth, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says the truth is that humans are born hostile to God. The Bible says that humans are actively working to suppress the truth of God. They're not passive. The the humanity that Christ came to save was not just a slave to lies. They were actively indulging in lies, are actively indulging in lies. And if you don't agree with me, you're going to have a really hard time understanding the world. This is not a basically good humanity 
that got caught up in some bad sin stuff and, and they and really just need to be set free. No, this is a humanity that has worked overtime to reject God as their king and works overtime to suppress the truth. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1.18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How do you, you to, to suppress the truth, you have to know the truth. To actively suppress something, you have to be aware that it's there. Humanity is not passive. They are active in their rejection of God. That is who God is saving. God is saving people who are actively suppressing him. Humans are born hostile to God. Now I ask you a question. What are you doing with God's servants? When God sends you truth, when God sends you reality, when God calls you to reckon with things, what do you do with that? The world is working very hard to suppress the truth of God. They're working really, really hard at it. They're really good at it. And the enemy is all for it. Because the truth of God, according to the Gospel of John, exposes our sin. We don't like our sin exposed. We would rather keep it secret. So we, we suppress God's truth. These vineyard Workers are working hard to suppress what? To suppress the reality that they don't own the vineyard. And we don't like that. We want to own our own vineyard. And our culture is telling you that you do. Your culture is telling you that you are in control, in control of your own life. That you do answer only to yourself. That it is your, your needs and your wants that are your highest goal. The second thing that the world's telling us that's, that's a lie is that because humans are good, good will overcome. And humanity is progressing. Has anyone ever told you that? This was the lie of modernity, that, that humans are basically good, and because we're basically good, we're going to continue to evolve, and the utopian vision that's coming is just we're going to get better and better and better, and at some point, we'll stop killing each other. How's that working? We're killing each other more now than we ever have. Okay? Humanity is not progressive, it's digressive. And this parable tells us this, doesn't it? There's a progression, or I should say a digression, to the evil of the humans in this parable. First it starts with a rejection of the servant. Then it moves to a shameful treatment of the servant. Then it moves to the murder of the servant. And then it moves to the killing of the son himself. This is a universal reality about evil in the world. It gets worse. It gets worse. It's going to get worse. Humans will continue to sin. Humans will continue to be evil. And unless it is either, listen, unless it is either restrained or removed, evil will always perpetuate. It will. It will. That's why in the book of Revelation, we see God coming not just to um, get his church. We see him coming to eliminate evil once and for all. It's very important that you understand that the gospel is not good news if God doesn't judge sin. The gospel's not good news if God doesn't come and once for all remove evil from this world. I'll say it this way. If God had sent 500 billion of his sons, we would kill every single one. Have you ever thought about that? How many more servants would God have to send before humanity would go, oh, you know what, you're right. They wouldn't. There is no scenario in which humanity does not kill God's son. Human evil is so bad, it is so deep, that the only way God could defeat evil was to let evil appear to win. There is no scenario where Jesus doesn't die. There is no salvation if Jesus doesn't die. And the gospel's not good news if God doesn't come fix the world systemically. 
There is no policy. There is no uh, government system. There is no, okay, think about this. The millennial reign, Jesus is physically here ruling on the earth. Humans still make war against him. Does that ever baffle you? We're talking like Jesus is actually set up physically reigning on the earth and unregenerate humans will continue to fight against him. Read the book of Revelation. Humanity marches against God. Why? Because they want his job. We want his authority. We want his sovereignty. We want to call the shots. We want to be God over our own life. Sam, this is depressing this morning. I'm sorry. It'll get better. <laughs> Human evil will never decrease. This is, this is why, um, this is why uh, the two countries that I listed earlier are having to align with NATO because uh, you think that Putin's just going to stop because he just has a nice moment? <laughs> no! Evil must be restrained. Okay? It has to be stopped, restrained, or annihilated. The third lie that we believe is that self-esteem and self-love is the answer to our problems. Have you ever been told that? If you would just have a higher view of yourself, if you would just love yourself more, if you would just see yourself as more important, if you would just be more prideful, love yourself more, that would fix the problem. That's a lie. I want you to see this. This is, this is important. The manifestation of the evil of the vineyard workers is that they kill the servants. But that's actually not the real problem. What's the real problem? The real problem upstream from that is that they've decided the vineyard should be theirs. And that has led to them killing servants. See, all sin, ultimately at its core, is vertical before it's horizontal. See, we think of sin, we think, well, someone murdered someone, that was a sin against that person. Yes, that's the horizontal. But before sin becomes horizontal, it, it always is vertical. All of our sin ultimately is an offense to God before it is an offense to man. All of our sin is a failure to recognize that God is sovereign, that he is superior. All sin is choosing to believe that our way is better than his way. That, that, that twisting and contorting what he has made to fit our own appetites is superior to enjoying his ultimate reality. These guys, their problem is not just that they're killing servants. Their problem is that they believe the vineyard is theirs and it is not theirs. And listen, guys, the vineyard is not yours. And when we sin, we're choosing to believe that it is. We're choosing to believe that it is. What makes sin most sinful what makes sin most sinful is not how it hurts other people, that's part of it. It's how it affects the glory of God. I'll quote John Piper here. He says, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin. Sin is ultimately a failure to recognize that God is sovereign. It's a failure to recognize and to, to, to submit to his authority. And that manifests itself in horizontal sins, which look like us hurting each other, killing babies, committing adultery, lying to one another, starting wars. All of that is a result of not being right in our worship, okay? Listen, I'll say it very clearly. All sin is ultimately a worship disorder. You've chosen to believe that your way is superior to God's way. All sin 
is a worship disorder, which means that the way that we deal with our sin is to get our worship right. It's to get our worship right. It's to realize that his way is the superior way. These guys believe the vineyard is theirs. That's the problem. It's not their vineyard. It's not their vineyard. So what? Well, until we see our sin as being primarily against God, we will not repent deep enough. And that's what happens a lot of time. We feel bad over our sin, how it affected someone. We feel bad over it. We repent to that person. That's fine, but your eternal, your eternal need is a repentance to God. You have offended God. And we repent to God first. He is ultimately the one who we have offended. David understood this, didn't he? He understood that his sin with Bathsheba was against God primarily. And until we see our sin as falling short of true joy, we will not drink deep enough. God is the superior reality. So I want to ask you guys, what are you doing with God's vineyard? <laughs> what are you doing with God's vineyard? Is it his? Are you treating it like his? And I think you know what I mean by that. I mean your life, your resources, your mind. Are, is the vineyard owner the one that calls the shots in your life? That's what a Christian is. Did you know that? I mean, a Christian isn't just someone who says, I, I concede to the reality that there's a God and that Jesus is his son. That's not faith. That's belief. They're different. Faith is when you live your life according to the sovereign authority of God. And you say, I am going to submit myself to the ultimate reality of God's authority. I'm going to say, I believe his way. And that's why James says that we see true faith in our works because our true faith will manifest in works. So what are you doing with God's vineyard? God loves to spoil us, by the way, doesn't he? He just doesn't want us to be spoiled. I love to spoil my kids. I just don't want them to be spoiled. He wants us to enjoy his gifts. He doesn't want us to walk around uh, beating ourselves over the head with boards, you know, like Monty Python. He, he doesn't want us to, to just try to be miserable because we feel like, well, it's God's vineyard and I can't enjoy it. No, he wants you, he planted a vineyard so that you could enjoy it, but you only enjoy it when he is the superior treasure of that vineyard. So the first absurdity is the absurdity of human evil. The second absurdity, the second absurdity is the absurdity of God's patience. Okay? I'm just going to be real honest with you. When I read this the first time, my first question was, what is this owner thinking? Sending servant after servant after servant. What is wrong with him? What is wrong with this owner? Is he reckless? Is he foolish? Is he lazy? Is he indifferent? What kind of owner continues to send servant after servant after servant? I'll tell you what I would do, okay? Tell me if this is how you would think too. Uh, first servant goes, comes back with empty pockets. I'd go, hmm, okay, they're out of here. Go find another vineyard to rip off, okay? Second servant comes back beat up, mocked, shamefully treated. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna come deal with them harshly. Third servant doesn't come back at all, dead, murdered. Oh, they're going down. Judgment. Anyone else feeling that? Anybody else want that? Yeah. You read this story, you're like, get them. They killed your servants. It says he sent many. How many did he send? Well, how many prophets did God send Israel? It's absurd. Isn't it absurd? The patience of God is absurd. <laughs> it's absurd. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. You know, a lot of people, especially in our, in our 
therapy coddled culture. They, they go, God just sounds so mean. The, the God of the Bible is so mean. How could he judge people? How could he condemn people? I, you know, you read a story like this and, and it pulls back the curtain on the fact that, that humanity has been stealing God's money, spitting on God's face, and killing God's servants for thousands of years. The real question is, how has God not judged the world yet? How has God not judged me because I am the one that took his vineyard? spat in his face, rejected his servants, and killed his son. How has he not judged me? The patience of God is scandalous. It's insane. What is God thinking? God is patient. He is patient. He's so patient. I can't believe it. It's almost absurd. Justice is a funny thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's always... You know, as long as I'm on the right side of it, I'm always very just. Until the prophet Nathan says, behold, you're the man. And then you go, oh, <laughs> can I have some grace, please? You know, God should judge the world until I'm the one being judged, right? If we could see, if we could see how righteous God is, how holy God is, and how far we are from missing, or how much we've missed the mark of God's holy, righteous judgment, we would go, I can't believe God has not fried me. I know that's offensive, to our culture, but it's only because they don't really understand the holiness of God or the severity of sin. The absurdity of God's patience. You know, what's crazy to me too in thinking about this passage is that he sends servant after servant after servant. What does that tell us? It tells us that if even one of those servants had come home with the collection, he would have ceased. Isn't that crazy? You know, God has sent many into your life. Some of you guys in here, you, you know, God has sent servant after servant after servant. Oh, grandma, she told you the gospel. She's been praying for you. Your dad, your mom told you the gospel. They've been praying for you. You know, you heard a preacher say it. You've heard it in youth group. You know, servant after servant after servant after servant. God is patient. God is patient. God is patient. But let me be real. The patience ends at some point. It's in the text. At some point, the owner comes to collect. So don't delay. The patience of God is not forever. It's astounding. For the Christ rejecter, I ask, how many times will you kill the Son of God? How many times will you reject the truth of God? To the believer who is simply choosing to ignore the word of God, I would just, I would just remind you, it's not your vineyard. Open your ears, interact with God's word, hear what he's trying to tell you. Your work in his vineyard now, there, as absurd as the human evil in the passage is, as absurd as the patience of God is in this passage, there's an even more absurd reality in this passage. I just need you to see it. There's an even more absurd reality in this passage. The reality in this passage is so stunning and so confusing that every time I read it, I just want to, I just can't understand it. And it's this, why would this owner send servant after servant after servant after servant see the pattern of destruction that the, the, the vineyard workers were causing to his people and then send his son knowing that his son would die? It's absurd. What kind of vineyard owner would spend, sloppily spend the blood of his son on a group of people that he knows would reject him? Why? Is this reckless? Is this heartless? Is this foolish? What is the vineyard owner thinking? And the answer is our third absurdity. The third absurdity is the absurdity of God's gracious providence. 
Not only is God absurdly patient, God is absurdly providential in the way that he saves. What do I mean by providential? Providence just means that God is reacting to the realities that, that you and I are producing, and he's orchestrating them together in order to form the best. God took the worst of human evil. Listen to this. If you don't hear anything else, this is the gospel. God took the worst of human evil and repurposed it for the best of divine salvation. Isn't that incredible? He took the worst thing man could possibly do. The worst thing man could possibly do would be to crucify the Son of God. It's the most sinful act any human could ever do. He took that act. He didn't cause it. He allowed it, and he repurposed it. Listen, the Father did not waste an ounce of the blood of the Son. It was not sloppy. It was not unplanned. It was according to the gracious mind of the Trinitarian God who before creation decided that the only way salvation could come would be for the Son of God to come into that creation and to defeat evil and to defeat sin from the inside out by allowing the worst of human evil to destroy him in order to save it. Isn't that incredible? Now these guys don't get it and the disciples don't get it, but Jesus in this parable is tipping his hand to the gospel the gospel that has changed many of our lives. The God who loved the world would send his only son to spend the blood of his son, the most precious blood in the universe. He would spend his son in order to save you and I. Now, I want you to follow me on this. Just follow me on this. This is so cool. This is so cool. There's a, a, a statement in here that the, the vineyard workers make. Listen, let us kill the son so that we can get his inheritance. Here's the absurdity of the gospel. You and I killed the son, and we get his inheritance. You and I are guilty. Our hands are guilty. We would do the same thing. We would crucify the Lord of glory. We would crucify Christ if he was here today. We have crucified the son, and because we've crucified the son, God is so good that we have gained his inheritance through saving faith in the son. We get his inheritance. That's what Jesus promises us, the inheritance of the son. Are you with me? Isn't that incredible? The gospel is cloaked in here, but it's so explicit. It's incredible. So what should our response be to this? Well, not repayment. We cannot repay the precious, costly blood of the Son. We can't repay it. Our response should be to repent and receive the greatest gift of God, which is the blood of his Son, and to begin to treasure God as the ultimate authority in our lives, as the vineyard owner. You know, there is gr no, there's no greater feeling in the world than when you admit that God owns your vineyard. Some of you guys have been pushing back against the goads of that reality for years. Nope, it's my vineyard. It's my vineyard. It's my life, my choices, my body, my decisions, my sin. And God is going to continue, like Paul, He's going to continue to say, how long are you going to kick against the goats? How long are you going to pretend like the vineyard that I created, that I made is your vineyard? It's not yours. God would say, it's mine. And I love you so much that even though you are hostile towards me, even though you have, have suppressed the truth, I am going to come send my son, let you kill my son in order to pay your sin debt. How stinking good is the gospel? <laughs> come on. How good, new, how good of news is this? It's life-changing. It's life-transforming. Man, God is so good. And this just pictures it beautifully. So I ask you, what are you doing with God's son? It's the most important question anyone will ever ask you. So just take a second and think about it. What are you doing with God's son? It's the most important thing you'll ever figure out. 
He is the cornerstone. He is not a stone that you can stack on top of other things. If you try to stack him on top of the life that you've already constructed for yourself, the weight will crush everything else. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. Have you built your life on him? What are you doing with the son of God? Have you exchanged your worldly blood guilt hands for the free gift of his inheritance? So in concluding, I just want to remind you of some of these questions. I think that this text reminds us of some serious questions. Number one, what are you doing with God's vineyard? I want you to think about this this week. What are you doing with God's vineyard? Number two, what are you doing with God's message? Okay, he's given you his message. He's given you truth. He's given you reality. Are you interacting with it? Are you letting it change you? Are you letting it transform you? Or are you putting servant after servant to death? What are you doing with God's son? Is he high and lifted up? Is he the cornerstone? Is he the foundation of your life? Or is he a modular thing that you've added to your life? What do you see in your story? Do you see God's providence at work in your life? I mean, if God could take the, the terrible act of the cross and turn that into ultimate salvation for his people, what else is God doing in your life? What else is, it, is he allowing that seems terrible that he's providentially working out? And what kind of father, when you think about God, what kind of father do you imagine? I want you to remember. I want you to remember this week when you feel like maybe God doesn't love me and maybe there isn't really grace for me. I want you to remember the absurd patience and grace of God in this passage. That he is the owner and that is patient and that is kind and that is gracious and that is just. There is no sin that will not go unpaid. It's either paid by Christ or it's paid by the individual. God is coming. Christ is coming. These truths are all true. And if you take one and leave the others, the gospel's not good news anymore. God is severe and God is patient. God is wrathful and God is loving. God is kind. God is just. All of these realities must be taken. Like when you tie your shoes, you put your laces together, you tie them up, you say, there it is. All of these realities are true of God. There is one true throne and you do not sit on it. I just think you need a reminder of that. I need a reminder of that this week. <laughs> There's one throne and it's not for you. Remember the disciples a few weeks ago, they were arguing about it. Who's gonna get to sit on the right hand? Who's gonna sit, sit on the left hand, right? Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking me. All authority in the universe has been given to one and it is Christ and only he is worthy. I just want you to remember that. There is no neutrality when it comes to God's sovereignty. There is no neutrality when it comes to God's sovereignty. We must acknowledge that he is God. Amen? Would you stand? We're going to sing a little more. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these convicting realities. God, I pray that we wouldn't just go out of here having learned a few things about the word, that we wouldn't go out of here, Lord, maybe feeling something for a moment, but then walking out, forgetting what you were trying to tell us. Lord, help us to take these things seriously. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this reality, Lord, that you sent your son, that you took the worst of man to produce the best of God. Lord, that now we belong, we've been adopted to you, been adopted by you, Lord, that we have your inheritance now. But everything that was Christ is now ours in, in him. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.